Welcome to the Listening Party podcast. My name is Rebecca Haas, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera Victoria. The Listening Party was inspired by those great nights many of us have spent sharing records, CDs, and now YouTube clips probably, telling our friends about our lives and the music that matters to us. Today on The Listening Party, we're going to be celebrating International Women's Day. This podcast is really going to look at the situation that women have faced in the world of conducting, traditionally a very male-dominated field. And we're going to learn about a new and exciting residency that aims to change this. You're going to hear from a principal mentor in this program, Rosemary Thompson. She's the music director of the Okanagan Symphony Orchestra. And she's one of the mentors in this brand new program that's going to be focusing on women in musical leadership through a national conducting residency. But first, you'll hear my conversation with Jamie Martino, the executive director of Tapestry Opera. It was Tapestry Opera that initiated this program and secured the funding. And Pacific Opera is very excited to be joining them as the lead partner in the opera sector. This program is a multi-year, multi-company initiative. The goal is to discover and advance female and non-binary or gender non-conforming conductors. The list of partners involved is illustrious, with the Toronto Symphony as the lead for orchestral partners, and many other opera companies and symphonies across Canada offering residency opportunities. The partners list includes Vancouver, Edmonton and Manitoba Opera, the Hamilton Philharmonic, Continuum and Toronto Summer Music, just to name a few. The program is an advanced three-year fellowship. It will serve six music directors, conductors, in cohorts of two, and these will begin a year apart. The partnerships with symphonies, orchestras, universities, and opera companies across Canada will create practical opportunities to assist, music direct, and conduct. Each conductor is connected to a career mentor, a senior female conductor who will help guide the conductor through their fellowship and career. And importantly, these are paid residencies. So why do we need this? In 2021, is it so difficult for a female to find space to be a music director or a conductor? Well, here are a few statistics. Did you know that less than 5% of music directors in Canada are women? Or that in the 2018-19 season, only 6.2% of conductors hired by the six largest opera companies in Canada were women. I still find this hard to believe, but I know that it's true. My first guest on the podcast is Jamie Martino, the executive director of Tapestry Opera, and I began the conversation by asking her what was the catalyst to embark on the program? Well, the impetus actually predates me within the company. Um, it came initially from Michael Morey, the, the artistic and general director of Tapestry Opera, who sat in a general director's meeting and listened to many people say that they would love to hire a female conductor or music director if only they knew any who were qualified. Um, and, and Michael thought, and then we have talked about many times since, that is, uh, if in fact, that is the reason, that is something that can be addressed. So it's clear that there is a gap in the sector. The, the statistics speak for themselves. It is clearly not the case that 
men are 95% more qualified than women to conduct. Um, we know that that's not right. Uh, and so the clear gap in the sector is not just room to learn, but also, you know, a safe space to fail, which is such an important part of growth and learning. And if you are uh, if you are always feeling like you have to prove yourself as a minority in your sector and not just prove yourself, but prove your entire gender or your entire race or both, then there's very little room for the kind of learning that you can only get by messing up and learning from that and trying again. Uh, and so part of what we wanted to create here was that safe space to fail. That's a really beautiful thing to offer. And I think it really indicates a shift in how the system works entirely. I mean, that's not how we understand a lot of classical music spaces to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a model going back, obviously, some distance about mm -hmm. what that role is like. So it, it's really an amazing thing to think about that, which almost sounds like the conductor will always be a powerful person in the room, but it does feel like there's a shift in how the collaboration in the room and the role of the conductor might be part of the change, which will impact men as well as women in most a big definitely. picture. Is this one of the most exciting elements for you or what else really excites you about this program? Yeah. Um, so that is, uh, it's funny that you would say that because for me, that is the most exciting thing about this program is the chance to, to shift you know, the, the cultural conception within the sector of who we think is qualified or professional or brilliant or a cultural fit. And we know the kinds of ideas that those words can hide. And uh, I would really like to see that change. And so I'm th I think about what it means for our conceptions of hierarchy and power and yes the conductor is always going to have power as you say and so what i would like is is for more thoughtful conversations about what it means to hold that power and what are the implications of who gets to hold it and how it's wielded that there are that there are collaborative and uh thoughtful ways to wield that power even if the hierarchy is in place i think that only good will come of letting those go uh, not just for the for the women and the non-binary folks and the indigenous folks and the black folks and everyone who is not represented in that one idea we have of what brilliant and powerful looks like. They will benefit from it, but also everyone else will. The, the musicians, the staff around the table, everyone. And of course, of course, the art itself is going to benefit from that. So I'm totally excited by this initiative um, because of who it opens the door to, but mm. also because you put money behind it. So these are people who get paid for actually mm -hmm. paying people a living wage and giving them opportunities. How excited was the sector and how many applications did you get? I mean, what was showing up in your mailbox? Yes, the, the budget actually is a really big, I, I have this thing that I, I say all the time that, uh, um, that really helps guide a lot of my decision making, which is that your budget is a moral document. I, I think that that is real. You know, you, you pay for the things that you value. And if you're not sure what you value, have a look at your budget. Where are you spending all your money? That will tell you what you value. Uh, and so um, the living wage was a key part of this. We wanted to create space for people not to have to worry about side hustles and if they didn't want to teach they don't have to you know we wanted them to really be able to take the space and and absorb as much as possible 
Um, and the applications, you know, we really were not sure how this was going to go. Uh, and our very first time out of the gate, we were like, okay, we have, we have two spots. We know that we hope to do around two with four to six people. So let's hope for 10. 10 applications would be great. Uh, and we had 35. So we were, <laughs> which, uh, you know, for the first round, we were very excited by. We were really, really excited by that. Uh, and we will work to find opportunities for as many of those uh, 33 remaining applicants as possible so that when the time comes for applications to open for year two, they will have had a chance to really work on their skills. We're going to do sessions with the mentors about how to strengthen their applications, what they need to work on individually, um, and, and really bring as many people along during this process as, as possible. While the applications were pretty diverse, actually, and many people, one of the questions was about whether or not they identified with an equity-seeking group, and, and it was an... Um, it was an answer any way you want, if you want to kind of question, and many, many people chose to answer. Uh, and so notably, uh, we know that there weren't very many Black or Indigenous applications among that, and that tells me that we need to do better relationship building with people in those communities ahead of the next round of applications, and that is work that will never, ever stop and should never stop. You'll hear from Jamie again later in the program, but I want to move now to a lead mentor. I'm Rosemary Thompson. I'm the music director and conductor of the Okanagan Symphony Orchestra and the interim artistic director of Opera Kelowna. Rosemary is in her 14th season as music director of the Okanagan Symphony Orchestra. She's also the interim director of Opera Kelowna. She has had a rich and full career. Her experiences include working as the assistant conductor with Calgary Philharmonic. She was also the assistant to Richard Bradshaw at the Canadian Opera Company. And she's also been the conductor in residence under Bramwell Tovey with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. When I sit down to talk to Rosemary, I immediately think about how few female conductors I've worked with in my 30-plus year career in opera. I guess the first thing I want to reflect is how, it's crazy to say it, but how rare it is to talk to a woman who is a conductor. I have a story I can tell you about when I applied for my first program that would probably fit that well. So when I was finishing up my undergrad degree, I was a piano major and I loved playing the piano, but I knew it wasn't the thing I wanted to pursue as a career, as a performer, a pianist performer. And I was sort of casting about for what I wanted to do. I was really trying to figure that out in my early twenties. And I remember uh, being at the music faculty the Edward Johnson building and uh, just outside of Walter Hall at the University of Toronto and I was talking on a payphone <laughs> to a friend of mine and there's a bulletin board right next to the payphone and on that bulletin board was a notice for the special program in conducting run through the University of Toronto. It wasn't a specific graduate program it was this very kind of ad hoc but very practical program in conducting and I had been playing I played cello so I'd been playing in the student orchestra for those conducting students. So I knew about it, it was on my horizon, but I had been working that year uh, assisting a friend, Anne Cooper Gay, with her children's choir. And I just loved it. And I remember talking to this friend and then I had one of those moments where you just focus in on something. And I was looking at this poster and I said out loud, I wonder if they would take a woman in the conducting program. <laughs> This is in the early 90s. And she said, 
and I'll never forget this. Oh, thank God, that's exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> and of course, the deadline was the next day. <laughs> so I went home and I worked all night on my application. Um, but when I tell that, when I tell people that now, I tell my own kids that now, they they're shocked that I that it that even occurred to me. And I think that shows how far we've come. I don't think anyone would be shocked uh, to hear of a young woman applying to a conducting program now. But the reality is that still it's under 10% um, across the world, around the world of conductors who are women or women identifying. And I can't wait for the day when I'm never referred to as a female conductor. <laughs> I'm just referred to as a conductor. And I think that day is coming. <laughs> and anything I can do to help that day come along uh, will be very welcome. It's exactly what female comics say. Why can't I just be a comic? Why am I a female comic? It has that same, there's a gender piece, there's a gendered piece to it because it is still the exception. What do you think the obstacle has been that we still only have 10% for women as conductors? I think that there's still a bias that when when people think of women in leadership roles, but I think that's generational for the most part. And, and so, you know, if you think about doctors now, there's there doesn't seem to be the same kind of discrepancy. I, I haven't heard anyone say a female doctor for a long time. In fact, my sister-in-law is a doctor and she has three boys. And uh, they said to her, mom, can boys be doctors? Right? And I had a similar story, actually, uh, I, a mom shared with me, because I do lots of, um, at the Okanagan Symphony, I've done lots of educational programming, and there was a young mom who uh, was bringing her daughter to my school shows every year, and then they were in Vancouver, and so she took her to see a family program at the Vancouver Symphony, and when Bramwell Toby came on stage to conduct, her daughter, who was then, I think, about eight, leaned over to her and said, Mom, why is the conductor a man? So there are these perceptions, right, that are taught. And I do think, you know, I was in my 20s, not that long ago, almost 30 years ago, wondering if it was even possible, because I, I wasn't seeing women conductors. I was seeing them with children's choirs, right, absolutely, and beautiful, incredible conductors. But I, I wasn't seeing a lot of women I asked Rosemary who she was aware of as a role model as a young conductor, and she named Agnes Grossman, Susan Haig, and perhaps most well-known to many of us, Maren Alsop. Maren's an American who Rosemary describes from her experience watching her in the rehearsal hall as ferocious in her spirit and brilliantly talented. Who did she take inspiration from early on? So I was a big admirer of Margaret Hillis, and Margaret Hillis was the... Um, she did not have, I don't believe she had her own professional orchestra, but she was the uh, chorus master of the Chicago Symphony Chorus and worked very closely with Georg Scholte when he was the music director there. And her apprentice and student was Doreen Rao, who was a, a professor at University of Toronto when I was there. And so I, Doreen was, when I did the audition for that conducting program, there were like 12 people on the jury and she was the only woman. <laughs> And I know, I mean, it's 30 years later now, so I can say this. I know from her that there were people on that jury that did not feel that I should be accepted into the program. Happily, Michelle Tavalshnik, who was the 
conductor disagreed with them and he really pushed for me to have the opportunity. But so I worked quite closely with Doreen and I never got to meet Margaret Hillis, but I heard such great stories about her and I, I enjoyed um, just some things that she'd written. And I remember Doreen telling me that, that they were doing a performance of Mahler 8, which is the biggest symphony you can conduct, right? The Symphony of a Thousand. And Schulte ended up in the hospital at, between the rehearsals and the performance. And he chose her to conduct the performance. And so Doreen was with her at his bedside getting notes into her score, you know, and, and that was year, decades ago. All of my mentors, my direct mentors, other than Doreen, were uh, and Anne Cooper Gay, who had really got me started, she and her husband, Errol, they were all men. So I was resident conductor with Bramwell Toby, which, you know, was an incredible experience. Uh, also for Hans Graf in Calgary, and Richard Bradshaw at the Canadian Opera Company, and Boris Brat at his summer festival. So they were fantastic teachers and fantastic mentors. And never once did I feel from any of them that being a woman inhibited me in the profession. And I'll always be grateful for that. But I, I do think um, this initiative of the Women's Musical Leadership Program is very exciting for women to be mentored by women, not just women, but to include women as their mentorship, because there are some specific questions, I think, that come up around gender, although I'm so happy to see those moving away <laughs> and not being gender specific. And I look forward to getting to that place. Thinking about the lack of representation of women in the field of conducting, I became curious. I asked Rosemary what her thoughts were on what the impact of a woman is in the rehearsal hall and how that might differ from a male conductor. Well, first of all, I don't think of gender nearly as binary as I used to, um, right? As we all are, are on that evolution. Um, but I also think that, that there are things that I bring as a woman to a conducting profession that are very different than some of the things that I have seen modeled. And I think that there's a real place for some of those elements. And I'm not saying that all women are going to conduct the same and that all men conduct the same. <laughs> I, I remember, so I can't remember who it was, but someone, I think it was on a board of directors who said, not my board, but someone at where I was guest conducting, who said something like, well, we had a woman conductor once, but she wasn't very good. <laughs> to which I, I was happily able to answer in the moment, not at three in the morning later when I thought of it. I said, oh, have you ever had a male conductor who wasn't very good? Is that turned you off all male conductors? <laughs> it was so ridiculous. Um, I've been asked what I wear on the podium. I mean, just things that have nothing to do with the actual profession and the skill set. So to, to kind of go back to your original point of view, I do, I, I really commend tapestry. Um, and I know that the, the, the genesis for this program, to some extent, was, it, was a direct result of the Me Too movement. It was a direct result of them seeing so much um, abuse of power in leadership positions and, um, and people who were in a, put in a vulnerable position because of that abuse of power. And I think that they really very thoughtfully considered that, that elevating women in leadership, um, especially where in specific um, professions where we haven't seen that can make a change. It could be part of that solution. It's, it's a joy for me also to see these young women 
on this path at the beginning of their, I mean, they're, they're enormously accomplished musicians already. It's, I'm not going to be teaching them how to be musicians. They're right, they're there already. But there's, there's a lot that I learned. I assisted a lot of people. So I sat a lot and watched and observed. And I'm grateful for those opportunities because you see not only what to do, but also what not to do. And I think conducting is, it's one of the last patriarchies. I mean, it really is this sort of dictator, has been a kind of dictatorship. And, and I, I love exploring how that is easing as well. I think there are ways that conductors don't need to hold an iron grip with the musicians. I mean, I learned very early on, no musician is gonna play their best from a place of fear. It's from a place of love and it's from a place of trust and encouragement. And that's what I feel like I bring to my leadership. Um, and so, you know, I think traditionally that has been seen as soft, you know, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I really want to become, uh, I think of my musicians on stage as my colleagues. So I hope that I can give these young women this just, you know, teach them some skills and tools that will help to give them the confidence to bring their voice to the podium. I think it's so exciting and, and kudos to POV, to Pacific Opera Victoria and the Toronto Symphony for, for jumping on board with this because it couldn't run without the support of all these organizations. And, and actually the program that is being created across the country is just so exciting. I wish I'd had this opportunity when I was their age. Speaking about the program, and I think about this right in terms of young artist programs, right? That there are some elements that you just go, oh, thank God somebody finally offered us this. Yeah. When you look at the program, what do you think is the most, ex or one of the most exciting elements that really stands out to you that is really a difference maker for a, an up and coming, right? Female conductor that is really, that's going to be like the, the good juicy meaty part of this whole thing. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, I think there are, there are so many elements, but I think what's, what's really incredible is the fact that they're going to be standing on so many different podiums. And, and we're working, you know, it's the first year. And so it's, it's fun to be part of the like decision-making around what's gonna make a good program. And it'll be a little bit trial and error at first, but we're already talking about the fact that it's great for, the, for, the, for young conductors to get feedback from the musicians themselves. And so we're putting in place a mechanism for doing that that is really, managed and um, and with a lot of care and a lot of positive feedback. So they're going to build relationships across the country with multiple organizations. And so that exposure piece, I think it has an advantage over just being an assistant in one organization. Um, I think it will really provide them at the end of their three-year residency with so many opportunities to develop further relationships um, across the country. So I, th I think that was, was a very wise move on the, on the part of Tapestry. And I'm encouraged by how many organizations are saying, yes, we want to be part of this, right? That's the time is right. So that's the main thing I would say. I do hope that um, my colleague, esteemed colleague, Joanne Folletta, who has been music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic for, for 20, I think 20 years, more than 20 years, you know, she and I have 
have very different experiences. And so I look forward to having that relationship as well. So the fact that they're, they're getting paired with two mentors who they can come to for anything, right? There's going to be a real uh, trust there that, that they can ask us anything that they need to. And that won't, they never have to feel like that's going to impinge on a career opportunity, right? They never have to feel like, oh, I don't want to go there because I might, they might see me as weak or they might see me as not knowing my things. Or um, I think that's also a really clever way of doing it. So they're going to be mentored by, by lots of people, uh, which is exciting because they can pick what works for them, right? And, the, and that's a great way of learning. But the fact that they're going to have these two mentors who are really overseeing every aspect for them, I think is also a really, really strong part. And I'm, I'm just so delighted to connect with these young women. And yeah. offer them whatever I can. <laughs> I want you to um, think back. I'm thinking about the girl standing in the phone booth on the pay phone, seeing me conducting, <laughs> post it, um, sitting where you are now. I mean, you know, sort of having walked through your life as a conductor, what would you want to tell that girl in the phone booth? I, okay, I'm going to, I'm, you can choose to use this or not. I'm going to share a dream that I had. <laughs> uh, I just reconnected with a friend from that era in my life. And when we, we had a wonderful visit a few weeks ago, and I was reminded of a dream that I had that she interpreted for me. I totally forgot about it. And I was running down a dock and there was a boat at the end of the dock. And I was trying to, I knew it was about to leave and I was running to, to try and get on this boat. And it was kind of a dilapidated old fishing boat with a bunch of old men in it. And they could see that I was running to try and get in the boat and they left anyway. And I was left standing at the end of this dock feeling full of disappointment and then I turned around and there was a huge purple yacht waiting for me. <laughs> and this friend of mine said, yeah, don't try and do things the way all these old men ahead of you have done them. Go your own direction, go your own way. And it was only after the visit that I remembered the dream. And I wrote back to her and said, oh my God, I remember I had this dream. And I was right at the beginning, like I was in the conducting program at U of T and struggling, struggling with my confidence, struggling with, with really understanding if I, if I deserved to be there, right? Not because of my skill set, but because of my gender. And, uh, and so she, she really, that really made a difference. You've got this big purple yacht just waiting for you, get on board. <laughs> for both Rosemary and Jamie, my final question was about the dream of the program. If this program were to have the impact you hope for, what would the future of conducting look like? Here's Jamie of Tapestry Opera again. Rosemary Thompson tells this story about how when she uh, was a young conductor, um, she had a, I'm sure that she told you this story, <laughs> so I'll, I won't retell it, but that she had a, a young girl come up to her in the audience um, after uh, Rosemary had a substitute conductor who was a man and the little girl said, oh, I didn't know men could be conductors. <laughs> and I think about that all the time. So the program is designed to address three things. Uh, one is opportunity and experience, right? So that's the, that's the practical placements, the time on the podium 
time and score study being in front of an orchestra, the, the opportunity and experience to just practice. Um, another one is the networks and relationships. So we're hoping to, we're, we're working to facilitate the building of, of deep and meaningful relationships that go beyond just the, the two or three week or four week practicum that they might do at this company, but that there is an ongoing uh, relationship building so that when they come out of this program, they have real connections with people who have worked with them who have the power to hire. And then the third one is the sectoral attitudes. Uh, there is a lot of sexism in our industry. I mean, in the world, but there is a lot of sexism here. There is racism here. Those things intersect in very particular ways. Uh, and addressing the pipeline is only gonna go so far if they are standing in front of music directors or in front of orchestras who are bringing those biases, unconscious or otherwise, in with them. Um, and there are some truly egregious quotes from, you know, old guard conductors about how would an orchestra even pay attention to a pretty girl conducting or would they be distracted? Like exactly the kinds of things you might imagine. And so there is success is limited if we're not also addressing the attitudes that mean that women, particularly women of color and particularly black and indigenous women, have to work much harder to get the same amount of credit, that their work adds up to less and their failures add up to more. And if that doesn't change, then the pipeline alone is not going to do it. And so part of this program is about having those larger sectoral conversations, bringing as many people along as we can so that hopefully um, and, you know, June 2020 had not happened when we conceived this program. And so my fervent hope is that people are getting used to doing this work and asking these kinds of questions and that the door is maybe a little bit more open than it was before. The system that Rosemary trained inside of is changing, not just for women, but for all gender identities and races. I'm hearing both women talk about confidence, self-trust, safe spaces, relationship, and power dynamics in shift. It sounds to me like this program really represents an aspiration for the industry to shift as a whole. It's a shift that Rose feels really encouraged by and speaks to a bigger picture of the art form as a whole. You know, I go back to that statement, nobody, nobody performed their best from a place of fear, right? What, what we really want, I mean, there's, we, we get caught up in the technical prowess and that's not unimportant. There is a skill required to, to be able to let your, your intentions fly, right? You, you want to be able to make it look easy because that is part of being a great artist, but it's only part of it. And if we, if we close off parts of ourselves because we think it makes us too vulnerable. I would argue that it closes off our ability to share vulnerability of humanity. If we're not expressing every aspect of humanity to other human beings, how are we really serving the art? So there's, it takes a lot to, to allow yourself to be that open. And I think our, our, our organizations and our institutions and our teachers um, need to, provide that safe space yeah so you know the old way of conducting the old dictatorship doesn't fly anymore <laughs> time for lots more women to take up the baton i love how optimistic she sounds 
I can feel her excitement. I was really taken by how much of this conversation wasn't about gender, but a system. A system that would benefit if it made room for a diverse group of artists with vision and skills to make music. I really believe we would all benefit from hearing the music guided by so many artistic voices that can represent many gender identifications and people who come from diverse ancestry. The first successful candidates for the program are Julianne Gallant and Jennifer Tung, and I look forward to learning more about them as they embark on their residencies. And I can't wait to be in the audience in the years to come and hear them at work. That's the podcast for March 5th, 2021. As always, there is a Spotify playlist for you to enjoy that goes with this episode. Rosemary Thompson has shared some musical picks that feature women at the podium and a few other guilty pleasures. She tells you about her choices in the liner notes, which are on the website on the Listening Party page, and you can find the link to the Spotify playlist there as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or iTunes? You won't want to miss next month's installment. We're going to hear from tenor Colin Ainsworth in the April edition. Colin is a terrific Canadian tenor, and he's going to be recording a recital for Pacific Opera that will be released later this spring. Colin grew up in a household with two deaf parents. I ask him how that impacts a future opera singer, and I learn what his parents enjoy about his vocal performances, which may surprise you. We're also going to learn more about one of the works on Colin's program. I'll be talking to Cree Métis poet Michel Poiré-Brown and composer Jeffrey Ryan about their relationship and how you create a song cycle. It's titled Length of a Day, and it traces the dramatic arc of descending into darkness and emerging into light. Truly music for the time of pandemic. That's all for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Rebecca Haas. Until the next time, be well. Bye for now.